Food Compass podcast. Today we're joined with guests who you may remember from our last two episodes to continue our discussion on the future of food. In this episode, our guests discuss some of the misconceptions around food and agriculture, including consumer perceptions, the impact of modern production practices on the environment, and the need for productivity growth. Why discuss misconceptions? Because it's important that the food and ag supply chain understand consumer perceptions and their influence on upstream processes. Beth Sauerhaft, a sustainability expert from the American Farmland Trust, further explains. Maybe the single biggest thing that we might take on, at least in the United States, is bridging the urban-rural divide. Or to put it on the flip side, think about how can we build a stronger and more sustained bridge between urban and rural populations? You know, let's explain why do farmers and ranchers do what they do? Why do urban consumers demand certain production systems that they do? In many cases, probably without even realizing what the real pros and cons of those requests or demands are um, and what the impacts to the farmer or ranchers are behind those demands. You know, why does someone really want non-GM or organic or locally produced or sustainably produced or, you know, we could go on with whatever the <clears throat> the moniker or classification of some t- sort of production system is that consumers want? Um, or why is immigration such a critical issue for farmers and ranchers? And that's something that consumers really should be focusing on, finding a workable, affordable, safe, environmentally, socially, and economically sustainable solution for Um, There's so many misunderstandings because we don't really build an opportunity for the dialogue between these populations that um, we we could go a long way just by talking. Chef Elaine Bosset provides a personal story from a local farmer. I interviewed a farmer one night, one day, on the growth of cantaloupe in Atlantic Canada. Okay. Let's be real here. Atlantic Canada growing cantaloupe. Uh, we live in the winter uh, like everybody else. Uh, and so therefore, it's a bit of an oxymoron to the consumer. So we wanted to write a story about this. So we wanted to do this. And he says, well, he says, let me put it to you all in perspective. Father, for all these years, my goal, and I always been educated to this from my parents, of feeding the mass and being able to produce a quality product that the consumer could enjoy at a reasonable price. And I felt good going to bed at nighttime because of this reason. But for one reason or another, for the last decade, the only celebration when it comes to farming is the guy that plants 17 bags of carrots. This is what he said. He brings 17 bags of carrots at the farmer's market on Saturday morning, and he's a hero. And they celebrate him as a hero. And I produce 60 million pounds of carrots, and I'm the enemy now because I supposedly am involved in GMO, pesticide, this and this and that. So where have we gone wrong from that perspective? And he was very sincere. 
But I think that is the problem. The consumer is not educated enough to know the difference. I think that um, you know, people don't understand their relative contribution to environmental challenges versus agriculture's current contribution. Here's Mallory Dimmitt, who leads strategic development at Likes Brothers Farms. I mean, this is not a battle we're going to win, but I'm, I just I think it's important to discuss. So sort of said another way, modern agriculture and farming receives an outsized share of the blame for nutrient pollution, water quality, stormwater runoff, habitat loss. Agriculture is part of the solution. I think we are starting to have more dialogue around that, and I want that to certainly to continue. Dan Burdett, a lifelong agricultural leader, provides this perspective. I think what's really misunderstood is there really is an environmental upside to modern farming. Um, When you think about the different farming practices that are out there, certainly there's room and there's need in the market for multiple farming practices, whether it's organic or non-organic or very traditional or small scale, large scale, even some of these newer super high tech methods like the vertical indoor farms that we've seen growing have a place in the market and have a need in the market. And I think what's interesting is to learn how those farming methods can work together and learn from one another. In fact, you know, usually there's a scientific rationale behind some of the traditional farming practices that that are being used. But modern high-tech, large-scale farming is often seen by consumers as a bad thing. And the fact is that more and more modern farming is using low-impact precision techniques that require less land, less water, less pesticides for every bushel of grain or produce that's that's uh, produced. Uh, Farmers are using more and more technology. They're using sensors, they're using satellites, drones, various ways of monitoring the crop and collecting information, recording data. They're using computers and supercomputers to manage information, increase transparency. They're managing big data sets, even using machine learning and artificial intelligence to help them make decisions. And all of this technology is leading to incredible precision more efficiency, greater production, improved transparency and reporting, and it reduces the dependence on natural resources considerably. Um, I, I mean, according to the USDA, in the last 40 years, U.S. ag production has doubled, while the use of fertilizers has essentially remained flat, and the use of pesticides has decreased significantly. Um, We talked about how GMOs is kind of a lightning rod. But since its peak in the mid-80s, the use of insecticides has decreased about 80%. And a lot of that is because of the introduction to GMO seeds. So there is an environmental upside to modern farming. And there's no question that science and technology that's behind some of the modern farming um, 
is, is beneficial. And um, I think it's misunderstood. I've been doing organic for 40 years. And so I have, I hope not a tunnel vision, but it's certainly a, a different perspective. That's Carmen Fernholtz, an organic farmer from Western Minnesota. And uh, I like to talk about when I drive to Wilmer, Minnesota, which is about 60 miles straight east of me. And I'm driving there in the wintertime after a snowstorm. Or I'm driving there now in the springtime after the snow has melted. And I see two to three inches of black soil in the road ditches. And it's, I understand the issue, but when my city friends and city cousins say, how come all of that soil is laying in the road ditches? I have a hard time answering it. Uh, And so we can talk about all of the technologies that have enhanced agriculture, have enhanced uh, food production, but and I've got the latest technology on my farm. Uh, I use it, uh, except for the, uh, the um, pesticides, obviously. But I think technology has neglected soil. I think technology has overlooked how critical soil is and how important it is that we be much more intimately engaged in what's going on in that soil and how we protect that soil. It's one thing for a farmer to be able to plant 150 to 250 acres of corn in one day, but what has that technology forced that farmer to do on that landscape? That's the kind of technology I think we have to really consider. I think something that has to be talked about, and that is a lot of people feel that uh, should, um, how do I say it, the world would starve if we became predominantly organically producing farmers. Certainly there's discussion and argument uh, on both sides, but I guess I reply to that by saying, if you would, if we could, in policy, have even 10 to 15% of the research dollars devoted to agriculture, devoted to enhancing the principles involved in organic production, we, we would be on an even par as far as feeding the world. There's no question about it because I look at the productivity on my farm and I'm in the same productive levels as my neighbors. And so we know that it can be done. Thanks, Carmen. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always impressed when I hear you talking about this topic and and I've heard you many, many times touching on this point. That's Gabe Guzmini, co-producer of the Food Compass podcast and founder and CEO of the Plant Pathways Company. Uh, Because to me, you are the ideal the ideal type, the ideal organic farmer. You think about how you maintain your land. You think about how you use technologies in a in a smart and conscientious way. Uh, you think about perception of, of your 
clients and, and your colleagues and your peers and the communities around you. And that to me, those to me are, are, are important drivers for any farmer, not just organic farmers, which links back to what you were saying. You know, we, we've gone a long way uh, from, you know, three decades ago, thinking of organic as going back to the stone ages. Uh, now we, we should be thinking as organic as a different way of, of, of analyzing inputs versus outputs and technologies that link the two together and learn something from it to apply in larger scale when it's possible. Here's Phil Pardee discussing the need to improve understanding of productivity growth. The area I'd like to focus on is uh, uh, to improve uh, an understanding and remove, I'd say, a complacency about the role of uh, productivity growth in agriculture and the role of science and technology in driving that productivity growth. And so, um, you know, economists measure productivity as a measure of output relative to inputs. And so a very common measure is crop yields, right? So it's the amount of output of a particular crop relative to the land that goes in it. Or we have some more sophisticated measures where we try and measure the total output in agriculture relative to the total inputs. That is not just the land, but also the energy and the seeds and the chemistry and the labour and so forth that goes in. And we've all been fortunate here in the US to to grow up uh, uh, in the post-war period where we've had literally unprecedented growth in productivity in agriculture. And this is something I have spent 35 plus years studying is uh, and trying to measure is productivity growth in agriculture. It's a tricky thing to measure and we don't always measure it uh, uh, correctly. And there are aspects that we leave out that we should try and, as Jason, I think, mentioned earlier, that we should try and capture and pull into our productivity measures. But nonetheless, uh, the, the profoundness of, of productivity growth, I think, is exemplified by some work we did uh, here uh, on simulating what would have happened if we hadn't had the productivity growth from 1950 to now, but we actually did. And so Beth talked about earlier about uh, the encroachment of uh, urban and peri-urban areas into agriculture. And in fact, the total amount of land that we use in US agriculture now is less than we did uh, 50 years ago. Part of that is because of that encroachment, but part of it is because we're just more productive in agriculture. And so if we turned off that productivity spigot, we did some simulations and uh, Roughly half the land mass in Minnesota are now committed to, to production agriculture. To produce the output that we produce now with the productivity levels that we had in 1950, we would have ploughed in the whole of the state and encroached up into Ontario uh, and Manitoba just to produce the same amount of output. So in the, the jargon of economists, you need to get your counterfactuals right. So if you turned off that productivity growth, environmental destructive implications of, of producing the amount of output we need to feed the world would be humongous. I mean, notwithstanding the problems that um, Carmen and others mentioned, and I totally agree we need to get smarter about how we do agriculture and, and the trajectory of productivity growth in the future is clearly going to be different than it has been in the past. But the importance of productivity growth, I think, is, is undeniable. In the, in the 60s and 70s was the golden age of productivity growth in US agriculture. Productivity growth in US agriculture is now below the long run average over the last 100 years. Right? So that's just something to think about. And, and how, in part, how do we get there is because we've started getting complacent about and, and thinking that that growth is going to continue unabated without investing in it. So we now invest 
the same amount of money in uh, Purdue and the University of Minnesota and the USDA in the land grants and the, and the public sector research systems today than we did back in the 1970s. We've been actively disinvesting in US food and agricultural research and public sector research. Yeah, maybe one side comment uh, related to what you were just talking about. We tend to think about investing in research to make output grow, but actually we need to invest in research so that output doesn't fall. Like half the battle is just competing with mother nature every year to make sure we don't lose ground. That's Jason Lusk, an agricultural economist from Purdue University. I tend to hear a lot of comments that I think are very misplaced about the role of farm and food policy. So there's a common, I, I think, myth out there that, you know, the reason, for example, we've had a big rise in obesity is because of bad government policy. The reason we have a lot of commodity crops grown, corn, soybeans, wheat and rice is because of government policy. And if we stopped all these farm subsidies, we wouldn't have had the obesity. We would have a much more kind of diverse food system. I just don't think that's right. <laughs> and, and for a couple of reasons. One, um, and I should say at the onset, I'm not a fan of farm policies. I just don't think they have the kinds of effects a lot of people think they do. So uh, on the one hand, does farm policy make food much more affordable? In other words, you know, make food cheaper so that people get fatter. Uh, I think there's very little evidence of that. You know, I, on the one hand, you might think how, what, are farmers lobbying against their own best interests? Do they want to receive lower prices for their foods? So I, I think just on the face of it, it seems kind of silly. And we let's pick something like sugar, which you know attracts a lot of attention in the public health uh, you know realm. So corn is a big input for high fructose corn syrup. Um, the biggest policy that affects corn prices is ethanol policy. It diverts forty percent of corn crops away from food towards fuel. It drives up yeah. corn prices, not down corn prices. Moreover, if we look at sugar specifically, we have a bunch of import uh, policies that protect U.S. Uh, sugar producers from foreign imports. Again, from an economic standpoint, not an efficient policy, but from the standpoint of prices, it makes sugar more expensive than it would have been otherwise. So again, um, you know, you might ask, so, so to the other question, why do we grow a bunch of these commodity crops if, if it isn't because of the government policies? And I think the main answer is biology. Um, you know, these are the crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, that mother nature has endowed with the ability to very efficiently convert sunlight energy and nutrients into soil in the soil into seeds. And these seeds are uh, easily storable and transportable. Uh, we can hold them over time. We can move them to places where, we're, where they're needed. And uh, these are just the crops that are most efficient at that. And I know we, it's always exciting to look at the new up and coming, uh, you know, crops that somebody discovers, whether it's quinoa or teft or some, you know, something new and exciting. And I, I think that's fun and we should always do that. We should keep an eye out for something new, but uh, it'd be pretty surprising if at this point we didn't find one of these crops um, you know, that's, that is so efficient at, again, converting this free sunlight energy into a form that we can so readily consume and eat. So I think our beef is not with policy, our beef is with biology. In this episode, we discuss some of the misconceptions about the food system, from consumer perceptions to environmental impacts of modern agriculture. There are plenty of misconceptions about the food system, and the Food Compass podcast will continue to shed light on these important topics from sources you can trust. 
Join us next time for more insights on the future of food. The Food Compass will lead the way. Interested in getting involved? Please follow us on our socials linked in the description below to keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you have any questions or would like us to check out a particular topic, send us an email at thefoodcompasspodcast at gmail.com. Also, please share this information as widely as possible. We really appreciate that effort as we try to grow our listener base. None of this is possible without you, our listeners, and we're excited to have you on board. Thanks for listening. Signing off until next time, this has been the Food Compass Podcast.